Hey everyone, welcome back to Who's There. If you're new here, thanks for joining us. If you're returning, thanks for coming back. This is a podcast where I talk to a new horror fan every week because I hope to destigmatize what it means to be a horror movie fan because most of us are just regular people who like the adrenaline rush of being scared. Usually, at least. Happy Halloween week. I hope everyone is getting into the spirit in the safest way possible. Personally, this week I revisited Scream, Paranormal Activity 3, The Blair Witch Project, The Ritual, Red State, and then I watched finally Hubie Halloween, which was really, really funny. I definitely laughed out loud at the Billy Madison reference, and if you have seen Hubie Halloween, you know what I mean. And it was so cool to see Salem in the backdrop since I was there in late July. What have you been watching? Let me know on Twitter at Who's There Pod. Now, on to this week's episode. I'm so excited this week because I'm joined by the former managing editor of Fangoria Magazine and horror expert Ken Hanley. He's unbelievably knowledgeable about the genre and we honestly could have spoken for hours, but I wanted to keep this brief ish. We talked about why he thinks people love horror, what went into publishing an issue of Fangoria and his time there, why he thinks the remakes of the early 2000s weren't given a fair chance, and what it's like to go to the movies right now. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. Hey Ken, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Well, um, as you said before, I'm the former editor-in-chief of Fangoria magazine. Um, Was there for uh, quite a while in uh, different positions. Uh, I want to say between 2012 and 2017, I was at Fangoria. Um, I'm also a published author. I wrote a book called The Eye and Evil, which is kind of a uh, comedic self-help book geared at monsters. Like it kind of, it helps Frankenstein get over his father issues and it helps Dracula be a better neighbor. Lots of fun stuff like that. Um, I also uh, hosted a screening series at Montclair State University called Friday Night Frights uh, that showed advanced screenings of horror and, uh, new independent horror films. Uh, we had the U.S. premiere of the film The Ritual uh, that uh, played there, as well as uh, Bruckner and, um, or I'm sorry, uh, Benson and Moorhead's um, The Endless played there. Um, and otherwise, uh, yeah, just sort of, uh, I'm a budding screenwriter. I went to school for screenwriting. And um, I also uh, have had my hands in the comedy world a little bit. Uh, I wrote for Macaulay Culkin's website, Bunny Ears, uh, for a couple years. And um, yeah, that's kind of my story leading up to this. Awesome. That is quite a resume. So the first thing I always ask everyone is, what is your favorite scary movie? My favorite scary movie... I'm going to have to say, I think, I think it's Event Horizon. I think Event Horizon, top to bottom, is probably the horror movie I enjoy the most. The one that I feel is the perfect balance between fun and scary. Like, it's kind of got that weird, gruesome Hellraiser aspects to it. But it's also, like, very fun. It's very pulpy in a lot of ways. It's got a great cast. Sam Neill's always fantastic to watch in horror stuff. Uh, I think that just as a base scary movie is probably my favorite. It's not the best, but it's my favorite. Okay, cool. Um, I haven't actually seen that one, but that is the second time that that movie has come up in the last week when I've been talking to people about horror movies. So maybe that's a sign. Yeah. I have been told that you live and breathe horror by our mutual friend, Patrick. How did you first fall in love with the horror genre? I think I first fell in love with the horror genre when I was young I mean what I sort of I mean at least people in my age group kind of had a very 
cool introduction to horror because horror at the time, uh, outside of what was going on in the theaters, I mean, in the 90s, uh, growing up, there really wasn't too much of like theatrical horror that was centered on us, but there was a ton elsewhere. There were the Goosebump books, uh, there was Are You Afraid of the Dark uh, and the Goosebump series. Uh, Erie, Indiana, all these kind of shows that were geared towards kids that were kind of off kilter, but nonetheless uh, really creepy and fun and engaging. Uh, and I feel like the real great aspect of being exposed to that as a kid, uh, you know, in terms of the anthology aspect of it, is that you would get a lot of different kind of horror. Like you, when you watch a horror anthology show, you get like a, maybe an alien episode and maybe a ghost episode or a vampire episode. So you kind of got little like sort of safe bites of everything that kind of, you know, hook you onto the real thing when you get older. But of course, uh, I also remember watching uh, certain movies that would eventually make their way to syndication. Uh, I watched, uh, I remember a TV cut of Friday the 13th part eight, Jason takes Manhattan, which I really enjoyed as a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, of course, there's stuff like Child's Play and Jaws and stuff that you just naturally, you know, watch in a basement with a couple friends during a sleepover eventually. So, yeah, I, I think that's sort of how I was drawn to horror. But, I mean, at the same time, I also really loved uh, horror books as well. Um, in addition to Goosebumps and stuff, I really uh, got into Stephen King during my formative years and uh, Clive Barker later and whatnot. Cool. Uh, do you remember what your favorite Goosebumps book was? I don't remember what my favorite was, but I will say I think my favorites to read were the Choose Your Own Adventure ones that came with like the, uh, the uh, I forget, the the sort of like changing covers, like the lent ah, Lento something covers, uh, lenticular covers. And um yeah, and I remember, I don't remember the plots through and through too well, but I do remember there was one ending that's, like, burned into my brain where, like, if you made the wrong decision with one character, it was, like, this little kid that would cry, and as you cried, he would grow and grow and grow and consume you, and uh, that was really upsetting to me as a kid, but, uh, but yeah, I, I really like the Choose Your Own Adventure I don't remember that book at all, but that sounds really dark for a kid to read. Oh, it sure was. Your sadness will consume you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a lot of friends growing up that liked horror as well? I'm going to say yes, uh, but like a as a kid, it was sort of like everyone liked scary stuff, but we kind of liked scary stuff because we weren't supposed to like scary stuff. You know, it was like that thing where, uh, you know, it'd be the things you'd watch at a sleepover or the thing that, you know, like you'd be talking about urban legends. I remember really enjoying the scary stories to tell in the dark books when I was growing up. And yeah. Just sort of weird, random urban legends. Um, I also remember my babysitter when I was younger always used to show us like horror movies, which she probably shouldn't have, but I guess I'm grateful for after the fact. But then uh, I guess I met a lot of like real horror fans probably when I got to high school. And even then, like, I, I still, you know, I kept a diverse crowd and, like, I really enjoyed, like, hanging out with, you know, I, I was on the track team, so I got to hang out with jock kids and, you know, I liked skateboarding, so I liked to hang out with the punk kids and stuff. So it, it, I kind of kept a diverse crowd, but, you know, we all kind of, kind of gathered together when it came to horror. Like, I, I feel like it was in any of those friend groups, I could probably get a group of people together and, like, go see, you know, scream, whatever at uh whenever we could or i mean it it, it was kind of difficult in the mid 2000s when i was like uh, a teenager because that was mostly like 
either uh, torture porn or uh, remakes, but still, you know, you get to what you get to. Yeah. Um, the early 2000s were definitely difficult as yes. <laughs> in terms of horror. Yeah. Uh, what but was you appreciate the ones that work though? Like it, when you go back to that era, like for all the sort of like more gruesome base direct DVD stuff, like you would really end up like, if there's anything that did work, you'd end up becoming a real champion for it. At least that's my experience. What was the first Stephen King book that you read and which is your favorite now? I think the first Stephen King book that I read to it, I, I think the first one I read was uh, Night Shift, which was a collection of short stories. And I remember I really liked that a lot. And that kind of uh, was the entry drug to his work in general. I think soon after I read it and I read uh, a couple other books. I actually really enjoy a lot of his Bachman writing when he wrote under Richard Bachman. Uh, there's one book of his called Blaze that's really, really good and not a lot of people have read it. Um, but uh, I, I think my all-time favorite has to be it. I think just between the fact that there's just so much of it and as much as I love The Stand, The Stand at a certain point kind of wears out its welcome just because it's so dense and there's so many stories going along at the same side. I feel like there's an interconnectivity with it which kind of really has made it such an enduring story for him. And at least for myself as well, in terms of being able to go back to that book and read passages of the book, I don't think I'd be ever uh, be able to ever do a page one reread of it just because like it's a thousand something pages and there's so many other stories to go out there and read. But I think definitely it's the most memorable um, and it's, uh, it's fun, it's twisted, it's weird, but like there's, there's just so much story to it that, uh, it's easy to get uh, to immerse yourself into it. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I haven't read it, but I've heard, I kind of want to go and read it to find out more about the backstory of Pennywise mm -hmm. and how he's an alien. But I know yes. there's, there's a little bit of with, uh, there's a little bit of writing about how the bully likes to torture little animals and that's just where mm -hmm. I draw the line. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. There's a uh, there's a character called Patrick Hepstetter who, in the movies, they always do weird little, like twists on that character. But in the books, he's much more of like a straight up psychopath. And yeah, they they have him torturing animals and stuff, and that's not good. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, uh, I mean the book itself. I mean with with. Pennywise being an alien, it's it's very funny when you look back at the sort of bigger picture of Kingsworth, because when you go through King's work, everything seems to be interconnected in some way, shape, or form, whether it's, you know, certain locations popping up multiple times as per the Castle Rock kind of stuff, um, and Derry and whatnot, to, you know, little characters being included here and there, and the thing that always would make me laugh uh, when I would revisit it is the fact that technically... Pennywise is the same alien as the alien from Dreamcatcher. Like, they're supposed to be the same exact alien, which is kind of hilarious considering the alien from Dreamcatcher is so goofy and weird. But uh, it, it's still, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty fun to go back and sort of see those interconnected links. Yeah, that is one of the really interesting aspects of, of King's work, I agree. What did you think of the remake of It? Uh, I really enjoyed part one. I thought part one was a lot of fun. Um, 
I think part two is very hit or miss. I feel like part two kind of drags its feet a little bit, but I also feel like they had less material necessarily to work with. So, um, but that said, I, I think part two still like on a barometer, on a scale, it's still like, I think a passing grade horror film. I really enjoy part two to like, at least elements of part two. I feel the cast is really strong in part two. Uh, but part one, I think, and most people would probably agree is, uh, the runaway success of the group of the two but I will say um, I still have like probably a soft spot in my heart uh, for the Tommy Lee Wallace miniseries I think that one to me is still the one I'm probably going to go back to more and more over the years okay so is it safe to say that Tim Curry is your uh, preferred Pennywise yeah I think I'll say that just because it's such a different performance like I feel like Bill Skarsgård's performance is very weird and very creepy and very unsettling. But I also feel like um, in terms of the clownness of it all, there's something about Tim Curry's performance that makes it feel like he's way more scary in an approachable manner. He's very scary in the sense that like, he's scary in the, here, let me try to put it in these terms. If there's like, if you're ever at a store or something, and you see a dude walk in the store and they're just lingering there for a little bit too long. And you don't know what their deal is. You don't know whatever, but there's just something off about them. That's kind of how I feel like when you look at Tim Curry's version of a clown, like it's a scary clown, but you can't pin down exactly what it is that's scary about it. Whereas I feel that the Bill Skarsgård one is way more like, oh yeah, this is a scary clown. This is a monster clown. That's a good answer. I think everyone will definitely be able to relate to that. Um, I was in a housing works today and I saw a, a $95 painting of a very scary looking clown. Um, I was like, who's going to buy that? Who's going to spend $95 on that? I sent a picture of it to my friend and I'm like, I'm going to buy this for you for your birthday. She's like, do not, do not dare. Exactly. See, that's (laughs) why you buy those kind of things so that you can keep them inside so that whenever there's someone that you really want to freak out, you're like, yeah, here's a gift. Here's your birthday present. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll start doing that. Um, so why do you think that people who seem perfectly sane on the outside love the horror genre? <laughs> uh, I mean, probably the same reason why people who seem perfectly sane on the outside are like complete psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> it's very rarely that like the outside, like it's like, oh yeah, that guy is crazy or that guy is whatever. I feel like people who are perfectly... I. I I feel like horror as a genre, I feel like everybody enjoys some bit of horror. It's all about finding like the one bit that works for everyone. I mean, there's like people who are just like crazy about the genre, but even then, like there's people that have lines and people that, you know, kind of push for wherever they can find that line and stuff. Um, Whereas other people just like simple ghost stories and simple like campfire tales and stuff like that. I feel like there's something... I feel like the, the, the true answer to this question is probably because horror in its basis is about stuff in real life. And like, not to say like, oh, vampires are real or werewolves are real, but those stories are all like, you know, allegories for stuff that, you know, you would encounter in real life. Like vampires are about like creeps and, uh, you know, werewolves are about like toxic masculinity sort of. And like, you know, there's there's a lot of real, real parallels that we can see from things that we can all kind of relate to or at least understand. And I feel like that's where 
that kind of uh, our attraction to horror comes from. Whether I and I feel like that goes for everybody, whether you're like completely sane looking on the outside or if you're there's something off about you. So you were the former editor in chief of Fangoria magazine. It's the mm-hmm. um it they sadly shut down about three years ago ish. Yeah. Uh yeah, there's a whole story to that. Basically what had happened was, um, and I'm not I don't think I'm speaking at a school, but it, it didn't seem um Basically, there was a number of staffing changes, um, and there was some financial issues with the company, and they had um, basically had gotten to the point where I decided that I wanted to sort of seek uh, my opportunities elsewhere, um, and I also felt like there really wasn't much more I could do at Fangoria as much as I wanted to stay there. It definitely seemed like they were, there, there was not much of a future for me there, so I uh, left the company. And then a few months later, uh, they kind of went dormant, but um, then they were bought by this company called Cinestate and Dallas Sonier, who's a producer out of Texas. He bought the company. Um, then a few months later, they announced it. Then a few months later, uh, or then I think they ran about a couple years before uh, some controversy happened with Dallas and his production company. Uh, and now I believe the company is owned by Tara Ansley, who's a producer for a really fabulous uh, modern horror film called uh, Tragedy Girls, which if you haven't seen, yes, highly I- recommend. Uh, it's kind of like Scream for the Instagram generation, I feel like, yes. uh, with a little bit of Heather's tied into it. And um, uh, yeah, and now she runs it. I believe she has a co-owner whose mind is slipping me at the moment, but basically they're keeping on their editorial staff that was still around during the Cinestate days, which is a lot of uh, former birth movie staff guys, film Noble Jr., uh, Meredith Porters, um, and as well as a few other former staff members from their glory days, like Mike Gingold, who was my editor when I was there. Uh, Tony Timpone, I believe, is still involved in some capacity. He was the editor for many, many years there. Um, so yeah, and uh, I think they're just sort of keeping on, keeping on. And uh, I don't know what more they're going to be doing with the magazine. I know that when Cinestate had them, they were really going in a lot of directions. Like they had podcasts, they had film productions, they had a lot of different things going on. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where they're going from here, but um, I have faith in the people involved that they'll keep the legacy going. And it'll be fun to see uh, exactly what they keep doing. Awesome. Backing up a little bit, um, how did you wind up there and what was it like to be editor-in-chief there? Uh, well, um, so I, uh, it was around 2012. I had just, I graduated from college the year beforehand and one of my close friends at college uh, had been a former intern there. And at the time, I honestly speaking, I was a screenwriter and I kind of didn't really want to do too much PA work because I had seen so many people I went to film school with and I had seen how they were being treated on sets and different shit, especially in the New York area. And I was like, I'm not going to subject myself to that. So, um, so as I was trying to put together some independent stuff, my buddy was like, Hey, you should try interning for Fangoria. They're based out of New York. You can get some uh, good networking opportunities and stuff like that. Plus you love horror. So I'm like, you know what? I read Fangoria when I was a kid. Let me give it a try. Went in for the interview. Uh, I guess I did well. Uh, started uh, not too long after Labor Day of 2012, 
At the same time, I started writing for a magazine called Diabolique. Uh, that was kind of an upstart at the time. Um, so I kind of did both of those things where um, with Fangoria, I was doing all the assignment stuff. I was doing interviews. I was doing transcription, uh, event coverage, all that kind of stuff that wherever they needed me, uh, web content, news stuff. And then for Diabolique, I kind of was taking a more proactive editorial role. Um, I was their web editor at the time, and I kind of got free reign to do whatever I wanted. So I would interview, you know, I had a column about interviewing comedians about their favorite horror movies. And I talked, I was very proactive. I was emailing, you know, publicists and comedians and all these people uh, to get the interviews done. Um, and I was also covering other horror stuff. And it kind of gave me this real sense of hustle to the whole thing where like uh, essentially uh, it was like basically half the content I was bringing to Fangoria. Half of it was like, hey, here's the stuff you assigned me. And then also while I was doing that, I got this interview and I got this interview and I got this. As that went along, uh, I was working in their uh, office in New York, which was right next to the Eugene O'Neill Theater. And um as that was going on, I got closer and closer to the editorial staff and the owner and everybody there. And I proved how hard I would work and how quick I'd work. And at a certain point, it got to the point where I was just about to leave. Like I, at, like my year internship was about up. Um, I kind of had the contacts that I had and I was like, you know, I know I'm going to go try to do some writing and uh, personal writing and, see what I could do from there. And then I got the call from them asking me if I wanted to come on full time. So um, I started working for their web department, doing uh, web content, different columns, different news stuff, um, tried to organize some other stuff, uh, worked with a lot of their staff, which at the time had uh, Sam Zimmerman, who's now with Shudder, Rebecca McKendry, Mike Gingold, uh, and Chris Alexander, who was the editor in chief at the time. Um, as well as a lot of their, you know, uh, sort of freelance writer staff that was there as well. Um, and it was a fun time. We, we really got to do some, um, like, uh, fun, cool, uh, like screenings and different opportunities. Uh, I had a really fun experience. We had a, a screening of the film Maniac, the remake, uh, with Elijah Wood that was at Times Scare in New York. And that's a whole story unto itself. But, um, but uh, beyond that, so uh, in terms of my path to editor, I was with the company with that, doing part-time stuff, part-time stuff. Eventually, Sam left to go join Shock Till You Drop, so I took his position as the web editor. Uh, then a few months later, Chris left uh, to go be the editor of, I think maybe Shock Till You Drop, as when Sam went to Shudder. So then Chris went there. Mike took his editorial position. I moved up to managing editor. Mike uh, ended up getting um, uh, let go from the company, and then I was promoted to editor. And then uh, a few months later, um, I uh, so I was basically an editor for I want to say the majority of 2017. I want to say maybe from April or May of 2017 until uh, or I'm sorry of 2016 until. Uh, about January of 2017, and during that time, it was very hectic because our staff, we our staff had been reduced by so much. At that point, I was working from home. I was the office had moved from New York City to Long Island, so I was maybe driving out to Long Island once a month to, you know, just do some stuff that was necessary in the office. But otherwise, uh, I was kind of like a one-man show with whatever small staff that we had left, um, and it was very hectic. It was very 
uh, stressful, but I really enjoy a lot of the memories of doing it. I really enjoy the memories of, you know, getting to cover like New York Comic Con and getting to go to, uh, uh, you know, screenings and film festivals, representing Fangoria, uh, working on a lot of things. I launched, uh, when I was an editor there, I launched uh, a podcast network that we worked with. That was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of great opportunities there. You know, it, it was sad to go from it, but at the same time, it was kind of a necessary thing for myself. And, uh, you know, as much as I loved it and I loved the experience and I loved doing it, like it was kind of nice to kind of go into a quieter lifestyle after a while. Like when you wake up to like a hundred emails every day, like asking like, publicists being like hey cover this or hey do that hey when is this thing gonna post when's this thing gonna post and you know between that and like writers and you know all that kind of stuff it was very good to be able to have a nice little quiet slice of life wow that sounds like a whirlwind Mm -hmm. and you also sound like you were the busiest postgraduate post undergraduate (laughs) student ever (laughs) yeah yeah basically yeah Uh, well i was lucky like um I had gone to uh, Montclair State University for filmmaking, and uh, that was a very fun experience, a very different experience. Um, but like, it was also something where, when that ended, that was kind of it for my academic stuff. They kind of brought me on with um, as an intern, like post, uh, like my aftergraduate kind of stuff was just like. Uh, yeah, it was just kind of like, hey, I would like to get experience in this field and doing these things and just sort of journalism stuff. And plus, I was a very talented writer, so I knew that I could write well. And so when it came to editing and proofreading and writing stuff, like I was very confident in my work. So, Can you tell us what went into editing a, a monthly issue of Fangora? Sure. So at the time that I became editor, um, we were about bi-monthly at that point uh and that was just because of our short staff that we took production a lot longer to work on however if i'm not mistaken i think i put together either two or three issues i think i think maybe two um and it was pretty crazy uh so basically um you'd kind of line up uh, the stories that you would want to the stories that would make most sense in terms of scheduling and stuff. Like for instance, if you have a September issue and there's a big project coming out in September, you're going to try to work in advance to, you know, get all the coverage assembled for that. At the same time, you also kind of want some evergreen stuff because if you run into a delay or if the, you know, money's tight or something like that, you need to kind of have things that'll read as well in October, August, you know, or September, October, November, as they would, you know, August, September, October, that kind of thing. So it would sort of, we'd have to go through the stories that we would want. Like we'd have to go through the columns that, you know, kind of go over through every issue and kind of plot that out. So, hey, if this guy's got this column, well, he can run that. You can do this. Uh, then we sort of go through the pitches, which would be, hey, what's writer, what writers are pitching what? Uh, then we go through the schedule, what's coming out here, what's coming out there. Does this person want to talk to us? Can we get this person, et cetera? Uh, then it sort of comes down to the editor's choice. Like what kind of things would I want to see in there? Uh, and for me, it was very um, important that I tried to get uh, a lot of inf- as 
as diverse of a slate as possible. So, um, you know, video games, I'd love to see video games get covered. I'd love to see music get covered. I'd love to see books get covered. Um, one of my personal passions that I kind of introduced during my last couple of issues was uh, stuff on unproduced projects. I loved hearing stories about the what ifs and the what could have beens of the world. So that was very important for me. And then at the same time, um, I would work together with my managing editor at the time, uh, who is uh, 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 Madeline Kessner. Uh, she would later go on to be a, uh, a film festival programmer. I think she currently runs the unnamed found footage festival based out of uh, San Francisco, out with a few people out there, which is a great festival to support. Um, and I uh, worked with, um, I forget who was our, uh, art designer at the time. Um, but we, we would put together, you know, sort of our, all the stories that were relevant to the time. I think one issue we did was uh, surrounding um, John Carpenter's music was kind of the headline of that one. Uh, I think at the time he had been announced to be doing the Halloween uh, revamp and stuff like that. So we talked to him about that and we talked to him about his albums and the scores he did over the years and all the projects that uh, almost happened and almost didn't, whatever. Um, and that was a very fun one. And then the last one that we did, we brought in a guest editor to uh, help us out, which was uh, Kevin Smith. We worked with Kevin Smith directly to, uh, at the time, I think he was making Yoga Hosers, which was his second horror, uh, third horror film after Red State and Tusk. And at the time, uh, we just thought it'd be really cool to kind of put a spotlight on him, considering he was really devoting himself to horror at the time. He had just done an anthology called Holidays. Um, and uh, we kind of felt like, hey, it'd be cool if we kind of gave the reins to somebody else to help co-edit this thing and sort of. So essentially, we worked with Kevin to program the magazine to sort of like say, hey, what was what were the horror that you enjoyed? What were the things that you liked? And I think the year prior, we had done it similarly with uh, Brian Fuller, the creator of Hannibal. Mm -hmm. And that was a runaway success for the magazine. And so we thought maybe capture lightning in a bottle with that one as well. So that was a very fun issue to work with. Uh, Kevin's a very uh, unique, talkative guy. So it was very cool to uh, pick his brain on horror. Oh, that's so interesting. Speaking of Kevin Smith, um... Patrick and I, which is how we know each other, we actually went to go see uh, Red State when it had mm -hmm. a screening at Radio City back in 2011. Um, and then the cast came out after and talked, and that was really cool. And I'm pretty sure Kevin Smith was there as well. I love that movie so much. And I realized today or recently that it's out of print. So yesterday I went on eBay and I bought a copy of it from Canada that's coming ah. soon. I'm very excited. I accidentally bought three copies that are region two DVDs from Europe. So they won't play in my DVD player. So I canceled those and there was one copy for region one DVDs. So I'm very excited. Well, uh, funny enough that you mention it because very recently, uh, they had come out with a lot of like, I think there was a new bundle of Kevin Smith stuff that dropped just around the same time that the new, um, arrow version of Mallrats just came out. Mm. And so I was like, you know what? Let me try to fill in the gaps in my Kevin Smith, uh, filmography for my collection. And I went to go look for uh, Red State and I saw the prices of them on eBay and I was like, I'll wait till they go down. <laughs> so you're, you're uh, uh, a better man than me. Well, this, I have seen the prices and they are insane. And I think you can get it off some website online. You can buy it from a retailer and it's like 60 bucks. 
This mm-hmm. with shipping was about 30. So oh, nice. I think that's reasonable for an out of print yeah. that I like. See, I think Dogma is also out of print and I was able to get that one for 30, which is kind of a steal considering it's also like elsewhere, pretty crazy high up there. But, uh, but yeah, uh, however, I, I do have a multi-region player. So I do, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore Blu-ray collector. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if I ever get to the point where something's out of print and I can't find it stateside for anything less than a decent price, I'll usually dip out and see where it is. Because, you know, honestly, funny enough, uh, the majority of German releases that I've picked up are pretty region free. They're supposed to be region B, but like maybe one out of five is like locked region wise. And uh, also most Australian releases are region free. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. You talked about um, you love music. What is your favorite horror score? My favorite horror score? Huh. Uh, that's a hard question. Uh, because the thing is, when, when I'm watching the... I think... You know what I'm going to say? Okay. So, I think my favorite horror score is probably It Follows, but it's probably because it's the, I, I'm not a fan of It Follows, and I feel like the score to me, I'm like, oh, this is a really good music video for this music. And I feel like that's the biggest compliment I can pay the movie. And I think to me, it's the only one that I really sticks in my brain. Although, I mean, this, it, it's very weird because there's a lot of movies whose scores I really find to be iconic and really well, but people might argue whether or not they're horror movies. Like, for instance, Jaws. I love the score for Jaws. People might argue that it's more of an adventure film or something like that. Or Gremlins. I feel Gremlins is a pretty like great horror score that's very memorable, but it's also, I feel like having that Amblin element, element to it makes it hard to be like a scary score. So, I don't know. Also, you know, you have to also shout out uh, the work, you know, a lot of uh, The Shining has a great score. Yeah, a lot of older horror has great scores. Uh, The Fly has a great score, a very underrated score. And then, of course, there's a lot of the great synth stuff. But yeah, I think in terms of the one that I feel is the most memorable based on the film that it's released, I'm going to say It Follows. It Follows is a pretty great score. Actually, you know what? I'm going to amend that. I'm sorry. Uh, I love the score for The Guest. I think The Guest has a great score. Oh, I will have to go back and listen to it. I just watched that a few weeks ago for the first time. So it was good. It was good. I did not see that twist coming or see who he was coming. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big Adam Wingard fan. I feel feel like him and Simon made a really... Uh, usually make really fun movies together. So yeah, that, that one has a really um, very fun score and that one is a very fun movie. And that third act is pretty nuts. I enjoy it. Okay. One more Fangoria question. Do you have okay. any favorite pieces that you wrote for the magazine? All right. My favorite pieces. I don't know entirely if there's two, uh, what pieces I would say would be my favorite. I was very, uh, I will say my most memorable ones, like uh, I think the first one I ever wrote for the magazine was an interview with Park Chan-wook for the film Stoker, which to me is a, one of my professional highlights. So I might say that one, but I also, you know, I loved talking to Kevin. I loved talking to John Carpenter. I loved talking to 
Uh, I loved a lot of the podcast stuff that we did. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I'm going to say probably my interview with Park Chan Wook is probably my favorite just because he was uh, a very influential filmmaker for me during my youth. I loved Old Boy. I loved the Vengeance trilogy in my youth. And I feel like his films uh, have aged very well. I feel like The Handmaiden is absolutely incredible. And I feel like Stoker is absolutely incredible. And it was really just a pleasure to be able to talk to him. And it was, uh, we got a lot of time out of it. And it was, it was a very cool thing. Although, you know, another really great interview that I did that I will, that I remember, although it, technically ran in gore zone so it might be a cheat i spoke to bob balaban about uh working on altered states and his movie parents and that was a really great interview he was a fantastic person to talk with and also uh i'm not sure if it ran in the magazine or if it ran online but i got to interview the cast of preacher when that first came out in 2016 and that was probably the highlight, uh, one of the highlights of my career, just because those guys are so much fun to talk to. And uh, it was such a, just, it was at a time in the career, in my career where um, it was kind of looking like it would be my last issue. And it was just a really nice relief to have like uh, a stress-free uh, chat with some of those people. I saw that, or. Uh... As you mentioned in your introduction earlier, uh, you wrote a self-help satire book called The Eye and Evil. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. So um, back in uh, 2014, I'd been with Fangoria for a couple of years then. I had the opportunity to pitch a book at Skyhorse Publishing, which at the time was a largely a non-fictional uh, publisher. So uh, I had pitched to them the idea of a uh, horror party cocktail book because uh, when I was in college, I was uh, a bit of an amateur bartender and I had a sort of mix of uh, a book of like mixes and stuff like that. So I was like, oh yeah, you know, instead of a Long Island IT, it'd be a Kong Island IT or a Skull Island iced tea. And it would be, you know, sort of more, uh, you know, banana flavored rum and stuff like that or, you know, different, different things to match different horror movies and whatever. And I pitched it to them. They're like, we really like the idea, but that sounds like more like a second book. Do you have anything else you want to pitch? And at the time I kind of came up with this idea for, Hey, it'd be fun if somebody wrote a self-help book for monsters. <laughs> so uh, they were like, yeah, we really love the idea. We love the pitch. I wrote a sample chapter that was kind of about, um, I think the sample chapter that I wrote was about, Frankenstein, Frankenstein's father issues. Uh, they really liked it. They like the whole kind of thing. I kind of wrote it in this sort of like Dr. Phil meets Kenny Powers type voice, like a fictionalized version of myself. And uh, I spent the next year writing it. I uh, It was a very, very fun book to write. They eventually got a illustrator who was affiliated with Marvel Comics to do the artwork for it, which was really cool. And then uh, it dropped, I, I finished it around June of 2015, that last month, because I'm a natural procrastinator, it's not fun, uh, but then we edited it over the summer, and then it dropped October of 2015. I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, going back, there's a few editorial er 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 errors, which are not fun to revisit when you're an editor, but uh, overall, I think the whole voice of the thing is very funny. I really enjoy, like, um, there's a whole thing about 
you know, there's a chapter about uh, trying to catch mummies uh, up to like the modern age and teaching them to use smartphones and social media and stuff like that. I really enjoyed that. Uh, I wrote a whole thing about uh, the dating lives of Creature from the Black Lagoon and stuff like that. So when The Shape of Water came out, uh, I, I was, it gave me plenty of fodder to work with, with being like, hey, I talked about this last year, stole my idea. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was uh, very fun to write. It was a very, uh, the illustrations are great in it. Um, and yeah, it was a very fun experience. I've always teased maybe doing another book at another point, but I'm very happy to have had the experience to do it. I feel like the book is very funny. I'm pretty sure it's pretty cheap on Amazon now. But yeah, it was very cool to work with a publisher and get something published and for having people want to read something of mine, which is unique. But yeah, it was something very different than like the whole journalism thing. It allowed me to sort of stretch my creative muscles, which at the time, like I hadn't really done too much personal writing outside of uh, school, uh, but um, it, it was very fun. It was, it was a fun time. And uh, yeah, if anybody's interested in reading it, check it out. Awesome. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes for this episode if anyone wants to buy it. Um, uh, so I was stalking your Twitter a little bit before this, and I saw that you're watching 31 horror movies in the month of October. Yes. Which one has been your favorite so far? So far, I think my favorite that I've watched out of the bunch is probably Waxwork. And that's because uh, I feel like it is so perfect for this season. Uh, have you ever seen it? I have not, no. So Waxwork, the whole point of Waxwork is that it's this movie from the 80s uh, about this wax museum that pops up in this uh, town. And uh, basically all of the displays in it are like scenes from horror movies. Like there's like an invisible man killing someone and there's like a uh, psycho killer with an ax and all that kind of stuff. And so this creepy dude played by uh, David Warner, who you might know from uh, Time After Time and a bunch of movies, you'll know his face instantly. He plays this uh, like creepy wax museum guy and he's like, hey, goes up to a bunch of like teenagers and he's like, hey, come by by midnight. I'll give you an exclusive show of, you know, all the pieces and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So uh, a group of teenagers, among them, uh, Zach Galligan from Gremlins is one of them, as well as Dana Ashbrook from Twin Peaks, who played Bobby on Twin Peaks. He's in it as well. They go to this wax museum and whenever they uh, enter the uh, wax things for one reason or another, they get pulled in and it becomes like the real like horror movie version of it. So a guy, you know, drops his lighter on a cabin set and like goes to go pick it up and he gets pulled into the werewolf story, right? Eventually the movie gets crazier and crazier and, you know, but it, it, it kind of becomes almost like the pseudo anthology thing where there's like a little bit of a mummy movie in it and a little bit of a uh, drac- like vampire movie in it. And there's a little bit of a zombie movie in it. But it's all kind of wrapped around this creepy wax museum kind of place that also has this weird, like, evil conspiracy behind it as well. And But it, it's got this really great blend of horror and comedy, and there's so many different elements of horror to it that, like, when it comes to, like, a perfect Halloween season movie... It, it just, it fires on every cylinder. And I really enjoy it. I think a lot of people will enjoy it if they go to revisit it. I think Vestron put out a really fun uh, double feature Blu-ray of it that also includes the sequel, which is kind of crazier where there's time travel involved and Bruce Campbell shows up and it's very, very weird time. But uh, yeah, it's a very fun movie. Uh, 
Uh, highly recommended if people check it out. Uh, but yeah, I've been doing the whole 31 for 31 thing. It's kind of an annual tradition now. I, I started doing it when I was with Vangoria just because it was good web content, honestly. And now it's just kind of a personal thing. Um, I think today I watched Terrifier, which I'd seen a few years back. We actually did a advanced screening of it um, with my Montclair uh, screening series back in 2017. No, 2018, my bad. And um, yeah, still holds up. Still just a crazy fucking movie. Uh, it was actually at a film festival that I co-programmed a few years back. And yeah, uh, but basically I think this year with everything going on, I really made a conscious decision to try to watch fun stuff. I feel like trying to watch something that would be too heavy or maybe too serious or like maybe, uh, or even like to an extent too scary. Like I feel like I just, with just between COVID and like politics being as it is, I'm like, let me just get fun Halloweeny stuff and I'll stick to that. And so that's kind of where I've been going. Uh, I watched Silver Bullet recently. That's a fun one. Um, yeah, so a lot of seasonally appropriate stuff. Also, where can people watch Waxwork? Uh, Waxworks, I, I believe Waxwork is current. It might be on Prime streaming. I watch it on Blu-ray, but uh. Yeah, I think it, it, for the longest time, it's been on Amazon Prime. Otherwise, yeah, I would say look around for it. It's got to be around there somewhere. But yeah, it's, it's on Blu-ray. It's, as I mentioned before, there was a really good Vestron video release of it with Waxwork 2, which is also very fun. Yeah. So yeah, if you get a chance, I, last time I checked, it was also on Amazon Prime. Okay, cool. Um, I also saw on Twitter that you started watching Bly Manor. Is that? Yes. I'm, I'm five episodes in and I'm loving it. What are your thoughts about it? Uh, well, of, of course I love it. I feel, uh, Mike Flanagan really cannot go wrong. It was funny. Um, <laughs> cause, uh, it took me a couple of days to get to it because originally I, I was going to watch it on Friday. But just for whatever reason, like, I was just not in the mood to watch something. You know, I just know his movies. And I'm like, Mike Flanagan makes some real heavy stuff. And I know Hill House had some real heavy moments in it. I'm like, I'm not necessarily fine jumping into it just now. But I jumped into it over the weekend. I loved it. Um, just there's something about his work that just really works. Um, it was very cool to see the other directors he brought in yet. Uh, I'm very excited for you to get to episode eight. Episode eight is very unique and different. I believe it's directed by Axel Carolyn. Yeah, I really dug Bly Manor. I love the performances. Uh, I love the set pieces. I don't think it's quite as scary as Hill House, but I will say the, the story is very fun. Uh, it's directed very well, and I kind of like the direction that they go with it in some of the surprises. Uh, what, what episode are you on to at the moment? Uh, I watched through episode five. I won't say what happened, to, so I don't ruin it. But. Do, do you know what character does it focus on? I think I know what episode that is, but I don't want to... I think it focuses on Mrs. Gross. Ah, yes, Hannah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Then, yeah. Yeah. That was the first, that was the one where I'm like, oh, okay. I, I guess we're into it now, so. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out just exactly what that whole episode was about it was a little bit confusing but i'm still really enjoying it overall yeah i mean the thing is it's it's very with that episode in particular uh for a while i was like oh is this going to be something where it's like a character that's kind of going through dementia or something like that what's going on with that but then they kind of make that last 
the last scene happens and it all kind of puts it in context. So. I agree that it's not as scary as Hill House, mm-hmm. but also that maybe because I've seen the turning last year. So I uh, yep. might know a little <laughs> bit of what's going on. Not that the turning was good, but sure wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was trying to show it to my boyfriend and I'm like, it's, I would have to pay five ninety nine to show it to you. And I'm not. Gonna <laughs> yeah. That's not worth the price. Yeah. It has a good score, I'll say that. It but, does. And the ca- yeah. and the cast is good. Finn Wolfhard is great. But Yeah. It's uh, just nonsense. And it's cr- it, the craziest thing about that movie. First off, you should read if you get a chance, read into the history on that movie because like like it almost got made like a ton of different times and then got sat on the shelf for like 2 years. And like it, it, there's so many different producers and directors that were attached to it. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of like a miracle that it even got made. Even then, it's like, yeah, a misfire is a polite way to put it. That's definitely the diplomatic way to say it. Um, so you've talked, you've talked about a bunch of directors so far that you really like. But do you have a one that you would say overall is your ultimate favorite? <sighs> My favorite director. I'm not entirely sure. There's a part of me, I, I naturally I want to say John Carpenter, but I feel like John Carpenter, like uh, when John Carpenter's work doesn't work, it really doesn't work. Whereas I kind of feel like a really, in terms of track record, like Don Coscarelli might be my favorite. It's hard to say. It's very hard to say. Although I have to say like most of my favorites are John Carpenter movies. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness is per- like a very uh, loved movie. Uh, love uh, Prince of Darkness, Big Trouble in Little China, a lot of those uh, movies. Funny enough, I'm not a huge fan of the original Halloween. Overall, I feel like his work really is great. Um, let, me, let me put it this way. His track record, when it misses, it really misses. But when it hits, it really hits. So it, there's that, that's something I really admire about John Carpenter's work. So yeah, I think I'll say John Carpenter. That seems like a s- safe way to put it. However, in terms of like tr- track record and just really great stuff, Don Coscarelli with the Phantasm movies, Bubba Hotep, John Dies at the End, uh, even Beastmaster, that kind of stuff. That's fun. All right. Although I will say, having mentioned Bly Manor, uh, Mike Flanagan is definitely a new favorite of mine. And there's a very good chance that over the next, considering the work that he's done in the past, I want to say less than 15 years, there's a good chance he could rise on that list very quickly, considering the quality of work that he keeps putting in. Definitely agree. What is your favorite movie of his? Of Mike Flanagan's, I will say, I'm not sure if I'm forgetting anything. Oh, wait. Oh, Dr. Sleep. I love Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep is really good. I really, I thought uh, Dr. Sleep was great. Uh, Ouija Origin of Evil is surprisingly very high up there on that list. Uh, Hush is really good. Gerald's Game is very good, if not a very difficult watch. Yeah, all of his movies are really good. I think I might have to say Dr. Sleep, though, just because Dr. Sleep for me was really, it was so ambitious in what it was trying to do, and the fact that it was so successful in that ambition is incredibly impressive. And it also had probably the most disturbing scene I've seen in a movie in a very long time. The scene with, what's his face? The kid from Room. I always forget his name. Jacob. Tremblay? Tremblay, yes. Jacob Tremblay. The scene with him is an incredibly, incredibly disturbing scene. And uh, Rose the Hat was probably the best horror villain I've seen in a little while. So yeah, I'll say Dr. Sleep. 
She was badass. Um, so an article came out a while back saying that horror fans are handling lockdown better than non-horror fans. In your opinion, why do you think that is? I'm going to have to say the reason that is is because we all have collections. <laughs> all of our horror fans, we all know what we want to watch and we'll go to it. Now, I, I think the real reason why horror fans are better with dealing with this kind of thing is that, believe it or not, I, I as much as people want to paint the horror genre as something where it's like, oh, people love seeing blood and guts and, you know, there's this sadistic element to it, I feel like horror at the end of the day is kind of about hope and it's kind of like, because when you see things, like, of course, you get the catharsis of, like, this guy getting killed or that guy being killed. But at the end of the day, you're rooting for the final girl. You're rooting for people to get out of there. You're rooting for whatever evil it is. Like, when you, that light at the end of the tunnel, you want to see him get there. And I kind of feel like for a lot of us, that's kind of where things have been. Like, I feel like for me, I'm always trying to be a little bit more optimistic looking at things where it's like, you know, as much as things in the world keep on getting rougher and weirder and crazier by the day with everything going on, I feel like it's still possible to be optimistic about us eventually getting out of the woods, eventually going back to normal, eventually learning to adapt and thrive again and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like when you're watching horror, you're kind of in that same mentality where you're witnessing horrible things happen. You're witnessing death and you're listening, witnessing people getting maimed and cut apart and stuff. But at the end of the day, you're kind of, there are characters that you root for amongst this group. And there's characters that you want to see make it. And, you know, it's always kind of frustrating to me as a horror fan when you see a horror movie that like, where all the characters die, like even the final girl dies, because it's kind of like you've watched these people fight for so long, you just want to see that guy make it. And if you don't get that, that's kind of like a bummer. Uh, I feel like a lot of the times horror fans kind of get that reaction when it comes to like watching movies where the uh, like comic relief character uh, dies or something like that. Uh, like I feel like we kind of all kind of pull for those characters. And so if they go, you kind of like get bummed out when they do yeah I, I feel like yeah for sure i mean for one example i mean I, i'm not sure if you saw get out in the theater or not but when when seeing get out in the theater when that last moment happens and you see the police lights are on and like the entire theater when i saw it just went like oh no we all kind of resigned our fact to like oh this is gonna be like the most dour ending possible. And when you saw Lil Rel come up at the end, the entire place lost their fucking minds. And I feel like that is kind of horror fans in a nutshell. Like we all expect the worst. We expect the Jason popping out of the lake to pull someone back down so that when somebody makes it out and they win, they beat the horror, it's something like, it's such a cathartic feeling. And I feel like that in general with, between COVID and everything else going on in the world, that sense of optimism towards, you know, greener pastures and getting out of the darkness is, uh, it, it makes it a little bit easier for us to cope because then it's less like doom and gloom. It's less dwelling on the fact that, oh, maybe things might not get better, you know? That is a great, great answer. Um, I saw Get Out not really knowing what it was going to be. I saw it at the AMC in Harlem. So that moment was even better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that on that same note, do you want to see Sydney survive Scream 5? Because I know a lot of people are saying she's going to not make it. Okay. So <laughs> so here's what I'm going to say about Scream 5. So uh, I, was, I, I saw Scream 4 in the theaters, and I didn't like it. 
and I was really torn on it because I remember for years and years people were saying like, hey, go revisit it, see if you like it or not, whatever. And I revisited it, I think, uh, earlier this year before the pandemic. And I still didn't like it that much. And I was trying to wind down the reason why. And I felt like the reason why I didn't like it as much is because I felt like I, I felt like there was too much beholden to the older cast that didn't give the younger cast enough moments to shine. And I kind of felt like, hey, wouldn't it be really interesting for a Scream movie if when if the ending of Scream 4, if the character that stabbed Sydney killed Sydney, and then that character got away with it. And it would have been the first screen movie where the killer would have gotten away with it, would have done the thing. And then you could have had this whole thing where you, you could set up so much more about, you know, the, the moral of that story. Uh, I feel like with this one, honestly, I'd be shocked if Sydney makes it out of the opening scene. I, I'd be shocked if she's not the opening phone call. But that said, um, I feel like if they're going to be going back to this well one more time for Scream, they have to be less beholden to that original cast. They have to realize, like, they, it, it's... Okay, so um, let me put it in these, these terms. In professional wrestling, there is a phrase called uh, counting the lights. And basically, that means that when a wrestler is at the end of their career, having, you know, done so many matches, and now they're veterans and their bodies are breaking down, they can't quite perform as well as they can. They usually do their last match, and they always want to lose their last match because they want to put the next guy over. They want to sort of give the rub to somebody to be the next star of whatever company they're working for. And so they'll lay down and they'll count the lights. I feel like for Scream 5, this is a very good opportunity for the cast of Scream to sort of pass it on to it, literally pass the torch to a new generation. And also, not only that, but also sort of be more beholden to what the original Scream was about. It's a franchise about horror movies and the rules of horror and stuff like that. And I feel like if they're going to keep going on, they're going to keep telling the stories about them. And they're not telling a horror, they're not, they're not expressing the rule, uh, they're not being beholden to the horror movie methods anymore because they're essentially still trying to cater to an audience that's 20 something years removed from 25 years removed from when the first film came out. So I feel, I feel like it would be in the best interest of the franchise and the best interest of the story and the world that West built if you kind of allowed those characters to be expendable to an extent. So I don't, expect Sydney to make it out of it. I feel like it would kind of be cheap if she did, because I, for all intents and purposes, if I, I, I mean, I'm glad that they're not just rebooting Scream and like forgetting all that or just doing something where somebody looks at a picture at, of Sydney and being like, oh yes, these things happened 20 years ago, whatever. I feel like them bringing them back is for a very specific purpose. And I feel like it's to shut her on this new cast and allow, especially considering the, um, Radio Silence is taking over the franchise. I feel like they could really inject it with a new voice and a fun spin on things, considering their how clever they are as filmmakers. So, uh, long answer to a short question. Uh, no, I don't think Sydney's making it out alive, and I'm fine with that. I feel I feel that it's probably better off if her and Dewey. It'll hurt to see Dewey go, but I mean, we all saw Randy go, so I guess. If, if if Randy can go, Dewey can go. And I feel uh, that, yeah, Sydney, Dewey, and Gail all kind of need to shuttle off to 
pass on the torch to the next generation. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it like that. Like you, I also did not like Scream 4 when I saw it in theaters. I liked it a little bit more when I rewatched it this year, but I'm also one of the three people that liked Scream 3. So I like Scream 3. I think Scream 3 is fun. It definitely gets beat on more because it's very early 2000s-y, but I, there, there's a uh, place in my heart for Scream 3. Yeah. I I will die on that cross. Um, so how do you decide what you want to watch when you're looking for a new horror movie to watch or an old one? For me, it's a lot about the, uh, well, for a new one, it really depends on the subject matter or the creative team or something like that. Normally, because nowadays, like, it's very easy to get a really good artist to do a poster for your movie that looks really cool and then the movie's not as good. But I, I usually will give anything a chance as long as it comes on a recommendation from somebody I trust or if it's something that looks really cool or fun or has a really good trailer. Um, but normally for me to like go out of my way to see something, it's uh, I usually have to be sort of enticed by uh, either the subject matter or the creative team. Uh, for instance, I just watched The Wolf of Snow Hollow, the new Jim Cummings movie, because I loved Thunder Road so much. And uh, I was very, very happy with that movie. I thought it was great. Um, as for old stuff, it usually depends on the mood that I'm into. Like if, if I'm in the mood to watch something a little bit crazier, a little bit more bonkers, it's usually what I'm drawn to. I'm kind of drawn to the weirder babies of them all but yeah anything that seems weird or cool or maybe something that's I haven't necessarily gotten to um one thing that I do normally and this is going to seem a little weird but with older films when I rewatch them uh especially lately back when I was with Fangoria I ran this article called Shadow Vision on the website basically what it was was I would watch movies contemporary movies or classics in black and white just to see if there was going to be any kind of tonal shift and stuff like that. Because honestly, if you watch Reanimator in color and Reanimator in black and white, you kind of get two different viewing. So I kind of really like doing that just to give a new lens and a new perspective on some older stuff. But yeah, uh, it usually depends on what I'm in the mood for. As I said recently, I've been way more in the mood for more fun stuff or a little bit crazier stuff that I, I don't necessarily have to dig my attention into. But there are certain times, like if it's a dark and stormy night, I'd love to throw on something like The Strangers where I'm really going to get creeped out or something that's a little bit more suspenseful or even like uh, there's, you know, one of the few real, so when, back when theaters were open uh, and you could go see movies in theaters without having to worry about dying, um, one of the things I would love to do is no matter what the horror movie was, I'd go out on a Friday and try to see a horror movie because it'd be great to always see a new horror movie with a crowd. Even if it's like the biggest piece of shit in the world, it's always fun to see it with a crowd. Like, and, and like, if it's just jump scare city, you're still going to get like jolted a couple times. There's something fun about being in a room full of people getting jolted and stuff. So yeah, it, it, it usually depends on my mood and what I'm into, but time, you know, if I've heard a lot of good things about a really brutal horror movie, I'm going to sit down and watch that brutal horror movie. It could be really gross and unsettling and gory, but still that's, I I'm, I'm game for it. I'm, I'm up for the challenge. So yeah, whatever floats my boat. That leads me to my next two questions, which are, um, have you ever had a noteworthy experience seeing a horror movie in theaters? Oh yes, I have. Uh, this is one of my favorite stories to tell. Uh, so back when I was with Fangoria, Fede Alvarez, uh, Evil Dead had come out and we had gotten to put together an advanced screening uh, that was a lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, it was 
filled with Evil Dead fans and stuff like that, but like nobody was really expecting that movie to be as brutal as it was, or as gory as it was, or as insane as it was. So when I had seen it, I was like, I, I really, really liked it. And I was like, I can't wait for general audiences to see this movie. So uh, the Friday that it came out, I got my friends together and I was like, all right, let's go see Evil Dead at the theater. We all get there. It's a pretty packed theater, but we sit down uh, and I turn to my right and the entire row of chairs next to me is filled with, I have to say, eight-year-old kids with like one adult at the very end who was like their guardian stuff. And it was like, I had known what was going to happen in this movie and like my jaw dropped. And I was like, oh no, these kids have no idea what they're in for. So having seen the movie already, I watched the movie and during like the big gore moments or the insane, like the arm cutting or the all that stuff, I was able to turn from the screen over to the little kids and just see them like watching through their fingers, like an entire row full of children. I'm like, who is this evil person that subjected eight children? Like, why are they here? How did they get here? So uh, that that's a very memorable experience to me. And then uh, also I remember the first time seeing the strangers in the theater. And that was a very special uh, experience just because it was a very unique type of horror film like the jump scares are so unique and crazy and it was very fun because like it, it was you know it's not even the jump scares as much as like you would see someone walk in the background and just standing in the background of a scene as it played out and then you would hear people who spotted it immediately and scream and then you'd hear the people that heard someone scream were then like freaked out by somebody screaming and then you heard like people starting to laugh because somebody got scared and then everyone starting to realize what was back there and it was kind of like this wave of of screams and it was very very cool so yeah those are the two that i'll probably never forget awesome yeah i don't think i've seen strangers since i saw it in theaters in what like 2006 yeah um i'm a little a little nervous to rewatch that one but it's on my list to rewatch. Mm-hmm. Um, i hear the director of that just made a film called the dark and the wicked that everyone's calling the the best horror film of this year so i'm really excited for it oh okay any idea when that's coming out i think uh first week in november Okay, cool. Streaming or in theaters? I think it's coming on VOD, but who knows these days? (laughs) I mean, everything's getting like, I just read before that Coming to America 2 is coming out next month, so who knows? (laughs) I know you live in New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that they were going to reopen movie theaters soon. Have they reopened them yet? They have. They reopened them, I want to say maybe... uh, two months ago nah, not two months ago uh probably about a month ago I have you think. been back i have yes i've been back uh, i actually funny enough i first went to a uh so okay so living in jersey the first thing that i did was ever since i want to say april or may there was a drive-in theater in warwick new york that i had grown up with it was like 20 minutes from my hometown and so I went that as soon as that drive-in theater opened, I went back there. I was able to see some movies. It was a very fun time. Uh, I still try to catch movies there whenever I can. Uh, you know, I got to see New Mutants and Bill and Ted and stuff there, and that's been a lot of fun. There's certain stuff that hasn't opened there. Uh, and so back in August, uh, I went to a theater in Pennsylvania just because I was very curious about, all right, what are theaters going to be operating like in a post 
pandemic world. And surprisingly, uh, surprisingly enough, I was uh, not too freaked out by it because it was um, all the seats, basically the theater that I'd gone to, the seats were uh, stadium seating. So everything was six feet away right there. And then they would X off the chairs next to you for sale so that no matter what, there'd at least be a two chair gap between everything. So uh, I saw uh, Train to Busan 2 Peninsula, uh, which is, was uh, the sequel to Train to Busan at that theater. Um, I thought it was pretty good. It's pretty fun. It's, n- it's not as emotionally gripping as the first one, but it was cool to see. Uh, then I saw Tenet in a theater, um, which I thought was great. Uh, and then I saw a 4K re-release of Akira in a theater, and then I, oh yeah, the uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow, I saw at a IPIC theater that was near me, and that was very uh, good. But yeah, I've been a few times, and honestly, what it's done, so so here's my mentality before people start thinking that I'm absolutely reckless and insane. Um, so uh, a couple things. First thing is that before the pandemic had started, uh, the virus was uh, community spreading in a lot of areas for a few months undetected before it became a thing so it uh from what i read it was around since at least december and i had done so many things between december and march that were like in retrospect absolutely insane like i went to a show where uh like a performance show that was like a capacity crowd for the indoor venue in jersey city like i'd gone to a comedy show in new york city in a packed room and then afterwards we all went to barcade in manhattan on valentine's day of all days like it was just the amount of things that i was doing is insane and i don't think i got sick during then or if i did i must have gotten over it and i'm i'm Frankly speaking, I, I, I am at risk. I do have a immunocompromised system. So I was very kind of curious about like, oh, well, if that, you know, if I didn't get sick then, like, and I wasn't wearing a mask, what are my chances of wearing a mask? But anyways, the other thing is that I have been wearing a mask. I wear my mask every time that I go to the theaters. I'm always social distance when I go to the theaters. And so far, I haven't gotten sick. Every time I've gone, I haven't gotten sick. And it's really kind of made me more confident in the power of masks and this kind of thing. So, you know, I, I not looking to press my luck, if that makes any sense, but I do feel a lot more confident having been to the movies a handful of times, not to say that these are like capacity crowds. I think the, the biggest crowd that I went with was like Tenet was fairly full, but even then it was like a 40% capacity and there was still distance between everybody and stuff like that. But yeah, nonetheless, it was very, um, I, I felt safe the entire time I've been there. And as I wear the masks, I wait for the two weeks to go by and I don't get sick. And so it's really made me confident about the movie going experience going forward. That said, I know tons of people aren't comfortable with that and that experience, but you know, you, you do what you can and you do what's comfortable with you. And, uh, yeah, if, if you feel comfortable going out and doing a movie, that's fine. If you feel like staying at home, that's totally fine too. But uh, but yeah, I for me, I've always been a fan of the horror movie experience. I also, I, honestly, uh, I also live with roommates too. So I have just amount of, uh, I have the same risk of getting it from them going to their workplaces and stuff than I do, you know, anything else. So it's, it's kind of a, it, it's a shot in the dark, but it's one that I feel confident 
as long as I'm wearing my mask and taking the precautions doing. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for that insight on what it's like to go to the movie theaters, and I'm glad you're being safe and wearing a mask. Yes, <laughs> I th- I, that's the most paramount importance, wear your goddamn masks. It's yeah. not that hard to do. Seriously. So what movie, what horror movie are you most upset has been postponed because of COVID this year? I gotta say Candyman. And I think that was because it was so close. Like we were so close to getting it and then it fell apart. But um, yeah, Candyman for sure. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get to it. I'm sure. I mean, it's going to be very interesting seeing the next couple months, what sort of falls through the cracks and whatnot. Are there any horror movies that you love that people generally don't like? Movies that I love that generally don't like? Yeah. Yeah, a whole bunch. I like, because I like weird stuff. I, I really enjoy weirder off, like, I I really, I, honestly, when I was at Fangoria, one thing that I noticed was that it was very hard to get people to watch independent horror movies, because a lot of them would sort of go to their comfort food, which would be the Freddies and the Jasons and the Chuckies of the world and whatnot. And that's totally understandable. I get it. Some people are just comfortable going back to the same movies over and over. That's totally fine. For uh, me, I always like giving the, I always like seeing the new voices and the weirder takes on stuff. And like, there's something just really enjoyable about seeing somebody who just goes for it. Um, there's a movie that I've seen that I know that I'm a real big fan of that I know a lot of people are torn on called Anti-Birth with uh, Natasha Leone, which is kind of like a really twisted Rosemary's Baby-esque type story, but it's shot very surreally and there's a lot of like weird long takes and it kind of reminds me of I'm thinking of ending things if that was a comedy and it's it's very fun and strange but I absolutely know that people wouldn't dig it and that's fine I know there's a lot of stuff that I I would personally like that I know people aren't huge fans of I, I'm a big fan of Ty West's work and I know that a, a Ty West is a mixed bag for a lot of people yeah I, I like a lot of weird strange things uh, I'm a big fan of Yodorowsky and uh, like art horror and stuff so it's it's um, I know a lot of casual viewers and sort of fans of those like uh, classic slashers don't appreciate the same stuff, but that's fine. I'm, I'm totally cool with people all having their different flavors of things. Yeah. Like I, I, I too, I mean, you know, I, as much as I lament the like remake boon of the mid two thousands, there's still tons of remakes that I was a big fan of. So like which ones? Um, I love the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake. I think it's mm-hmm. great. Um, I think uh, there's there's a couple others from that time frame that I really I really enjoyed the Alexandra Aja um, Hills Have Eyes I think that's great as I mentioned the the Evil Dead remake is great I, I there's there's a lot of them I feel like with most remakes there's it was a whole kind of like they exist so screw them mentality but I feel like like if you gave them a chance there's lots to like about them there's certain ones that are terrible absolutely like I have tried watching the nightmare on Elm street remake so many times. And every time it just reinforces how shitty it is, but it's, it's, you know, I feel like the majority of them got a bad rap to be honest. If you could reimagine one horror movie, which one would it be? If I could reimagine one horror by that, do you mean like if I could do my take on it or. Yeah. Just not a reboot, just remaking it. If I could have a chance to redo a horror movie, a horror movie that I think was close but got it wrong. Uh, 
That's hard to say. I, that, I feel like that, that's a very good question to ask me right after I've seen a movie. Because <laughs> I feel like when I see a movie, I'm kind of like, oh, that would be re- like, that was so close to being really good. But, it, you know, there's just one thing wrong or they kind of fumbled the ending or something like that. Um, so the turning? Actually, you know what? I, okay, so the one that I kind of wish that I could do. Okay, so here's, here's the one I'll say. This is my stock answer. I wish that I, I could have, I wish that I could have done Halloween from the perspective of the kids. I feel like the idea of Halloween with Michael Myers being the boogeyman uh, would be a lot more of a fun story to tell through the eyes of kids, especially considering like there's so much of a stalker element to things that I feel like you can get away with so many more fun things through the perspective of a child who thinks that the boogeyman is coming for them on Halloween as opposed to the babysitter and that kind of stuff. My last question is if you had to spend quarantine with one horror villain, who would it be? Quarantine through one horror villain? See, normally I would like to say Hannibal Lecter because of the conversation, but I feel like he'd end up eating me at some point. (laughs) So I'm going to say, I think I'm going to say Leatherface. Leatherface seems kind of agreeable. I could probably get him to do whatever I needed to. Like, if I didn't want to have to take out trash, I could probably convince him to take out the trash. Uh-huh. That is one answer that I haven't gotten yet. Also, he also wears his mask. That's very important. <gasps> that is true. Yeah, he knows how to wear a mask. All right, well, thank you, Ken, for being here. This was so much fun. I had such a good time talking to you. Uh, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you on the internet? Sure. Uh, my Twitter is at movieguy, I guess. One word. Otherwise, oh yeah, I'm on Instagram at slams underscore and underscore scares i'm not mistaken um i really hate social media so i hate promoting myself but that's where you can find me otherwise uh yeah that's about it for anything that i have currently going on stuff i i you know i was working on a bunch of stuff prior to the world shutting down but if you want to read my work um some of it's archived at fangotv.com uh, you can also read my comedy work uh, at bunnyears.com, uh, and you can um, get my book, The Eye and Evil, which is still alive. All right. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you again so much. Have a good night. Yes, likewise, Allison. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. <laughs> Bye. That's it for this week's episode of Who's There? I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ken, and thanks again to Ken for coming on. I'll leave a link to purchase his book, The Eye and Evil, in the show notes. As always, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our feed wherever you listen to us. Thank you to everyone who's already left us a review. We really appreciate it and it really helps people find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Who's There Pod or on Instagram at Who's There Podcast, or you can feel free to shoot us an email at thewhosetherepod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, concerns, horror movie recommendations, or you think you should be our guest. Of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I hope that everyone has the best Halloween ever, at least the best that we can have under these circumstances. Until next time, stay scary, wear a mask, and don't forget to vote on November 3rd.